What awe is, is this sort of positive state that makes us curious and feel wonder about the world. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Rossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. By God, who knows we need it. Thank you, listeners, for the ongoing support. Continue to rate us. That, that does apparently affect some sort of algorithm. No one online can explain how that algorithm works, but if you rate us five stars, that's got to help. So thank you very much for that. This is episode 20, and it is called The Enigmatic Title for today's episode is The Science of Awe. We have Dacker Keltner with us today. He is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, director of the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab. He is also founder and faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. He's a very busy man, as you can tell from that description. Dacker, welcome. It, it's great to be with you guys. Dacker, I, I, um, I was wondering, when you're at a party and people say, so <laughs> I'm Steve, I work in finance, what, what, how do you sort of kind of describe over a beer what you do? <laughs> it's so funny you ask that question because it's always a complicated question when you're a psychological scientist like right. over me. Yeah, you know, I, I think what I say is uh, I do two things, which is I really focus on the science of human emotion and human meaning. And, you know, with the idea being that emotions like compassion and awe and gratitude and anger even are okay. pathways to meaning. And a lot, another side of my research is about power and hierarchy and inequality, which I think is, uh, it's probably the most compelling social problem today. And then the second thing I say, you know, like Igor is, I think today knowledge needs to be actionable. And 30 years mm -hmm. ago, scientists didn't mind keeping their findings in the lab and in right. arcane esoteric journals. And so now, you know, we're really interested in getting this science out to healthcare providers, federal judges in the United States. So, you know, trying to trying to make the world a little bit better with knowledge. Right. That crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you think that sort of people are a bit more, there's a sense you can't knowledge for the sake of knowledge is, is no longer a sort of valid position. Well, I think there are two things that have happened and, you know, you can trace it back to Stephen Jay Gould and, um, you know, others and Steve Pinker and hmm. Malcolm Gladwell then, which is one is the public is more interested in science. Right. Um, you know, they're more interested in the findings that Igor produces or social psychologists or motion researchers. Hmm. Uh, and then the second thing is um, the, you know, thanks to people, broad writers like Gladwell and David Brooks and others, you know, we now use science for practical purposes, right? Um, we're interested in how science may help our family dynamics or may help people handle cancer, right? So I think there's this, I think science has arrived at this really healthy place, notwithstanding replication crises and the like, of just being part of our thinking about our culture, which I find exciting. And you've, you're kind of right there, aren't you, really? You know, you're running the, the Greater Good Science Center and doing active research. So you definitely got a foot in both camps. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I mean, and thanks for saying that, you know, I uh, my first identity, back to your original question, is I'm a scientist. But it's, you know, the Greater Good Science Center and it's greatergood at berkeley.edu is free. And we have six million readers. And it's been, you know, we just had a conference and I was so gratified that, for example, a woman working with indigenous people in a nature preserve in Chiapas, Mexico, was using our science to help people handle the trauma of 
displacement. People working in right. orphanages are doing it. So I think science, you know, these are wisdom. And I love your the title of your podcast is has a scientific basis now uh, that our public really is hungry for. So I want to uh, jump in. The first thing, when I mentioned that I will have Dr. Keltner on the podcast, <laughs> The first thing that came to me was, I, I asked questions. I was like, what should I ask Docker? And uh, some of my scientist friends asked this question, and I wonder what you will yeah. say. So, so they say, like, you know, Docker's theory uh, often draws on so many different fields. There's like psychology, philosophy, religion, sociology. So how does he manage to integrate across all these literatures? <laughs> well, I'm not sure I do, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, you know, Igor, I, I've always been committed to, as a scientist, trying to go where we don't have answers and where there aren't set paradigms, right? Uh, or even ways of asking questions like, you know, what is awe? Or how do we tease people in a way that's friendly? Or why do we laugh? Or how does social class influence the human mind? And those are all questions that didn't have a lot of social psychological research on it. And so you just have to turn to other sources of wisdom, you know, be it Irving Goffman in sociology or Edmund Burke, a philosopher on awe, or a lot of great writers like Pierre Bourdieu on social class. And, and then I think right. that the integration, you know, this is what I love about our methods. I believe that, you know, when you look at the array of meth measures and methods we can use in social psychology today of getting out in the world and studying people in forests for awe or looking at big data or to study prejudice and inequality, uh, measuring physiology, measuring genes. Um, it's all at our disposal now. And so the, that combination of like relying on other disciplines to think about problems and then to use these measures, I think it helps us integrate. And, and, and then you need brilliant right. graduate students and undergrads to, to really push it. Yeah. So, the awe experience is something I yeah. wanna, uh, we want to focus on next. And maybe to introduce it, first I have a question to both you and to Charles. So maybe we'll first start with Charles. So Charles, can you recall the last time you were really taken by the vastness of either experience or landscape, architecture? What was it? Okay, it's interesting because I thought you were going to ask Dakar first and I thought I could just say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. What, what Dakar said, I, I say the thing, thing the same. Um, but no, actually, I don't know if this really fits into all, but um, the last time I kind of had that gasp at nature, um, and we'll get into how we define yeah. all, I guess, in a bit, but um, was just walking past the blossoms on the street that I live in. And because oh, they're wow. not, they're not always there and they just come on really quickly. And you're just walking down the street doing your normal sort of trudge to work. And you just suddenly it takes your breath away. You go, that's incredibly beautiful. And it's right mm -hmm. there on an urban street and it, and it wasn't mm -hmm. there. It feels like yesterday. And then bam, it's suddenly there. And, um, it's quite breathtaking. It doesn't have that vastness, which seems to come up in the, the sort of right. what yeah. I've read about or, but yeah, so I'm, I was quite shocked. Um, it was arresting, definitely the, the beauty of just mm. seeing these blossoms. And I, it was almost the contrast in an urban setting and the speed with which, uh, the, the speed of onset, I think was a factor. Mm. So did it happen to you? Did this feeling came immediately as you saw it or more like afterwards when you started reflecting on this experience? I, I think it was, it was quite a short lived experience and it happened straight away. Um, straight away. And it stopped mm -hmm. me sort of in my tracks. Uh, so it's very powerful, came on quickly. And then um, 
I guess maybe it had a sort of a background quality put me in a slightly better mood but the the feeling uh, the arresting feeling was instant uh, and then probably tapered off quite quickly that that would be my view yeah uh, Daka, what about you? You probably ask this all the time, but like, let's go. the last time you experienced the vastness, uh, he was going to say the blossom on the, the street corner. So I've stolen his idea. I've too late. <laughs> yeah, no. And I love that example. Um, yeah, I ask the people all this question all the time, so I'm grateful to finally get to answer it. You know, so what's what's really interesting is you know we intuitively think that nature is a deep source of awe, and in North America, that's true. And and I love Charles's uh, description about uh, blossoms and spring and the suddenness of it. For me, it was a social experience yesterday, where mm. we had our graduation and rituals and ceremonies and collective gatherings are one of oh, the most wow. common sources of awe around the world. And um, you know, the, the the neat thing, and I bet you feel this too, Igor, at you know at your graduations is you know we had four hundred grads at UC Berkeley, about a third of our grads. Graduates are first generation; they're the first kids in their family to go to college. Wow! Uh, so it is—you just see the world changing there, and then the collective nature of it. And it's in this amphitheater where the Grateful Dead have played, and you know uh, <laughs> Iggy Pop has played, and the free speech <laughs> movement at Berkeley had a crisis there, or a sort of a famous conflict. So it's this historic place. So. Right. I was a rush of goosebumps for two hours as the graduation unfolded, which was amazing. And probably the anticipation also from the students, like oh about what, what will happen next. And like, finally, mm. this moment. Yeah, no, and you see their faces. I was looking out at their faces yesterday yeah. and they were blissful. And then you right. talk to their parents and they're crying and hugging you and kissing you. And I was <laughs> like, this is amazing. So uh, that was it. Lucky enough. What about you, and so, um For me, uh, well, you know, I'm actually, well, it depends on the definition of awe. We'll get to yeah. that in a second. I promise to our listeners because it depends on <laughs> yeah. what yeah. we mean by that. I think uh, I just walked down the street today this morning. I decided I, I had to drop off the car at the mechanic, uh, usual inspection. <laughs> and then I walked back for like 45 minutes from the other end of town or all of downtown Toronto. So I had to go through downtown Toronto. It's sort of like very foggy and misty and well all the skyscrapers and i was just i think i was just walking by and then looked up and then mm. it just felt nice that's kind of experience of being this little unit in a huge city so maybe that not, yeah. uh, but it's a very different type of experience we all covered we covered nature we covered social experiences and uh, this is the architecture yeah uh, a bit of an architecture buff i cool. guess that means um that makes sense that people listening might be going or oh, sounds like almost so broad that is it really a thing? You know, so um, maybe we should start drilling down into how it's defined because, like you say, we've covered lots of different things there. So let's do um, it. Yeah. So Dakar, this is this is your what you're excited about right now. This seems to be, yeah. from what I understand, this is the the focus of of your ongoing research. So how are you de- how are you defining awe, and how how is it different from feeling elevated or uh, uh, admiration? You know, what is it that specifically yeah. makes something awe? Well. You know, the, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that we do in uh, any, you know, scholarly endeavor is try to define complicated phenomena. And God is all a complicated phenomena. It's like trying to define, as William James did, you know, the mystical or religious experience. Mm. And so what John Haidt and I did in, in 2003 is said, you know, following on Edmund Burke, this Irish philosopher, really interesting guy right. in the 18th century, awe is really about vast things or powerful things. 
And then it's also involves naivete or what we call the need for accommodation, which is, I don't understand what I just saw, right? So, you know, you're walking down the street, Charles, and you, the, the blossom just shocked you, kind of caught you off guard. Mm. And so, so, you know, vastness, power, and then naivete, or you don't have knowledge to understand it. And I think in, in a funny way, Charles's example problematizes that first piece of it, vastness. And I think that it ultimately awe is about things that transcend your frame of reference in the present moment, right? Mm. Uh, so you, do people do feel awe about really small things like looking into a microscope is mm. often like, Oh my God, the mitochondria, the cell, yeah, yeah. Ah, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> your example of a blossom is, is, uh, not, doesn't quite fit the kind of power idea of awe. So I think we're refining it to focus on, wow, this thing transcends my current yeah. frame of reference. And then I don't understand, I don't have words or concepts to make sense of it right now. So what is, not that everything has to have a function, uh, Eagle keeps telling me every time I notice that something happens, I always try and claim some evolutionary biological route, and Eagle reminds me, sometimes <laughs> things just don't have an evolutionary yeah, biological route. Yeah. But so, so is there a, a function to all? I mean, it's a kind of a strange thing to ask of it, because it seems like a good in itself, but is there a function to it? And, and how does it affect psychological processes? What, what are we seeing coming out in the research? Oh, man. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I mean, we always have to be wary of these functional accounts of things that really were inspired by evolutionary approaches, but also uh, cultural approaches are often functional. And, you know, I've kind of always championed that emotions, even though they feel disruptive and irrational, uh, have purposes or functions mm -hmm. that we can mm -hmm. understand. And I, and I do believe that's the case. So I think what awe does is at its core is it, it relates the self like this bounded entity that I am with my own individual beliefs and interests. And it relates that self or it integrates the self into larger forces outside in the world. And that, you know, I think there's a lot of consensus that, that one of the defining qualities of human evolution, and this is E.O. Wilson, most recently, the social conquest of earth. You know, the defining feature of our evolution is not our opposable thumb or our skin or, you know, it's our sociality that we're so social. You know, we have friends and we, we attach, unlike our chimpanzee relatives. And we, in particular, have groups that are essential to tribes. And I think awe emerged out of earlier thermoregulation processes in mammals to start to bind individuals into collectives and larger forces. And then the human mind uh, does interesting work with that, where it connects us to nature, right? Where we suddenly feel like a lot of awe experiences, people write about feeling like they're part of an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in indigenous cultures, that is a hallmark of their belief system is that I am part of this ecosystem. So awe connects us to forces larger than the self, which is essential to our evolution. Do you think um, we're more likely to be caught off guard then by feelings of awe, you know, living in a more sort of urbanized environment? Uh, whereas if you're like constantly yeah. uh, enmeshed in nature, you won't get sort of surprised to be reminded that you're part of nature. You know, it might be something. Yeah. You know, that's one of the, you know, that's such a great question. And we don't, we, we don't know empirically. Hmm. And, and it raises this really interesting question, which is, as I immerse myself in a source of awe, like I become a wine connoisseur, you know, the first time you taste a great wine, you're like, your mind is blown, like, oh, my God, you know, you start crying. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, wonderful food. 
So as we gain more knowledge, do we feel less awe? And I don't think so. I, you know, I think when we immerse ourselves in things, we become more open to the wonders of that domain, be it music or art or, you know, food or architecture in an urban setting. And it has an even greater capacity for awe. We, we actually have one study that's under review that we had people over the age of 75 go out and take an awe walk once a week where they go out and find things that make them feel wonder and awe. Mm-hmm. And we found, to your point, Charles, that, or to, to, in relevance to your point, that they felt more awe as they continued to do these walks each week. Right. Right. Uh, and it had a lot of benefits. So, but it's, a, it's one of the deepest questions. Does knowledge countervail awe or augment it? And I hope, I hope a listener takes that question on. <laughs> right. Maybe one of the graduate students. You've got 400 who just graduated. So someone should take that on. Um, there, there seems, I had a little list here of, of um, things that came up in your, um, in sort of all research. And there seems yeah. to be a bit of a thread to them. And I wondered if you could just speak to that a little bit. So it's it kind of humility is something that seems to increase. Uh, moving from the small self to the big self, uh, being yeah. pro-social, being more generous. What's the sort of thread that, I mean, it seems like there's the kind of aspects of one thing in a way. Yeah, well put and, and nice eye. So, you know, the, I think where the field of emotion has really made a lot of progress and it's made progress in a lot of different realms is all of this work on these pro-social state, right? There's a huge literature now on gratitude that Franz Duvall really traces back to primate food sharing. There's a big literature on compassion now. There's a big literature on love. Um, there's a big literature increasing on awe. And, and I was really inspired by an amazing book from 1988, Passions Within Reason by the economist Robert Frank. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, one of the things that these emotions like love and awe and compassion need to do is shut down self-interest so that you can commit yourself to other people, groups, friendships, and the like. And so that idea in 1988 when no one was studying these dates mm. like compassion and awe mm. and right. gratitude i was like that's it right we're, we're these social beings we occasionally have to be pro-social or even pretty routinely and emotions do that these this subset of emotions does that mm. work and so that's why we focus on you know brief experiences of awe you go out in the woods and you feel more altruistic you have an expansive view this is jenny seller's work uh, you go up and see an amazing view, and you become more humble, right? Uh, you um, get out in, in near Yosemite, and yourself gets smaller. So all the perils of narcissism and the social costs of it are diminished by awe. So I think it's a part of its function. And then I think it also makes the field interested in this state, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, gee, it has. it's not just about LSD or, <laughs> you know, raves <laughs> or my kids or, you know, or cults or religion. Yeah. This is this is about civility. So I want to jump in here, uh, put my <laughs> cultural hat on, and sure. uh, talk a little bit about the awe and humility and uncertainty. So it's one of yeah. the findings that you just mentioned, uh, Docker. And um, it seems to make sense that you know when we think about awe, it could lead to humility. Yeah. And in English, it makes perfect sense. But now I put the uh, my uh, uh, like I try to look at it from the German language, the language yeah. of Martin Luther, an yeah. Ehrfurcht, and so that has, it consists of two words. Air means to uh, it's fair and to admire, and forced to fear. So yeah. why would an admiration-induced fear yeah. <laughs> uh, lead to humility rather yeah. than some kind of running away panic. and uh, panic? Yeah. 
No, I know. You know, dang it, Igor. I, I was fearing you would ask this question, and I admire you for I'm doing sorry. so. so. I'm sorry. <laughs> See what you did. <laughs> yeah, and even the etymology of the word awe, you know, it comes out of these different uh, traditions. It, it basically means, like, good, I delight in things, I admire things, but I dread them and I fear them. Well, so point one is that we, in this original paper by John Haidt, we theorize that threat is a flavoring dimension of awe, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it varies according to culture. And you're absolutely right, Igor. We've gathered data from 26 countries of awe, got narratives, coded the narratives of awe. And, and we've also done diary studies where we ask people to report on their awe each day. And threat really varies dramatically, right? In, in North American context, Canada, U.S., it's, it, threat doesn't color awe as much. But if you go to China, very much threat-oriented. Um, if you go to part Turkey, there's a lot of threat in awe. But I'll note, and this is really important, we've, in this study of 26 countries, overwhelmingly in every country, the feeling of delight and pleasure is twice as high as the feeling of fear and threat. So, so yeah, on balance, it's a positive state with this cultural variation in threat. But the thing that's really important to remember is a lot of the great statements about awe, uh, you know, the, the tradition of the mystics 2,500 years ago, uh, people writing like Martin Luther, who, by the way, got inspired by almost being hit by a lightning bolt. Wow. Right. <laughs> want f- fear and terror. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, those were more violent times and, and more hierarchical times, right? You know, we had monarchies and, you know, torture and so forth. So I think we have to remember the cultural context in which people write about emotions, the history of an emotion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, if, if we had data, I think what we would find is that fear and threat that's so deeply embedded in the etymology of the word awe, as you talk about, Igor, it, that threat has kind of diminished over time through a lot of interesting develop, cultural developments like our individual rights and our interest in nature and so forth, and the, the, and the decline of religion. Religion really used to have a stronghold on awe. Mm. And, you know, for beginning in the age of enlightenment, that really changed. So you say that in the past, awe might have had a more sort of a darker quality to it, but then still in some countries today, it has a, yeah. Uh, yeah. a more sort of threat component to it. So is there any sort of, I mean, this might be speculative, but any sort of sense as to why, what, what is it that the countries that have, a, have this dark component to or what do they have in common versus the, the ones that don't? Man, you guys have been like spying on my lab or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's the most, it's the most interesting question, which is, you know, um, awe is more fear-based in China, and we've got a lot of data on that. And I think it has to do, and we're starting to find with, you know, the valuing of vertical hierarchies there. Mm-hmm. Uh, awe is more fear-based in Mexico, uh, some of our data show, and we're very interested in that it's a more religious culture. And we find that re- more religious cultures tend to have awe that is is more... Uh, imbued with fear and threat. And, and you know, and if you have dear Mexican friends like I do, a lot of their religion has a kind of a threatening, mystical mm. uh, dimension to it. So I think right. uh, cultures vary in what they think about power dynamics and more hierarchical cultures make awe more fearful. And religion, regrettably, has, I think, a, a lot of different religious tendencies make awe more threatening, right? What will happen to me after I die? 
you know, and, and that makes this emotion a little bit more fear-based. I wanted to, we, we touched on it just before, but we sort of skated over it a little, little bit. So I wanted uh, to ask about this idea of the diminished self. It, and yes, it's a, yeah. a term that one can sort of say and where we kind of go, yeah, yeah, diminished self. But like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what, um, what does that mean in a bit more detail? Like, what is the experience of feeling yourself diminishing? Like, I mean, it sounds terrifying almost like, um, but I guess it's considered a good thing. What, what does it feel like for yourself to be diminishing in, in, in an awe experience? Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's so interesting because in the mystical traditions and mystics write about awe, uh, it's, a, it's like the self is, a, is annihilated, right? And, and that's 2000 years old. And, when naturalists like Emerson write about awe, they become nothing. He refers to all mean egotism vanishes. Famous phrase of his, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. It, what it we've done a lot of work on. You know, put have people watch Planet Earth and they feel awe. Get them outside, mm. um, they feel awe. We we study people near Yosemite, and and the self gets small. You know, they draw smaller selves. They write their names smaller. They mm-hmm. report feeling more humble. Uh, if you ask them to write about their strengths, Americans love writing about their strengths. <laughs> you know, they could go on forever. They, they write about fewer strengths. They talk few, about fewer strengths in themselves when they're talking to a stranger. So, you know, the, the self gets small. And, and that, again, you know, a lot of our attention and our social tendencies are rooted in, like, my interests and my beliefs, and this is what Dacker thinks. But that can be problematic, as the literature on narcissism shows, if it's, if it's pushed too far. And so you need a curb on that. That's what awe does. And then to your question, Charles, like, what's it feel like? It, it, feels, it feels a little, you don't feel quite as empowered. So that may be a cost of this, right? Mm. Um, you don't feel as much agency in the context. We might worry about that. But on balance, um, it has a lot of benefits. It, it, you feel less stressed. Uh, your inflammation is lower, our studies show, the bodily's uh, response to pathogens that attack the body. Um, and you feel like you have more time and peace. So it's this interesting dynamic of not quite feeling like the master in the universe anymore, but feeling like things are open and worthy of wonder. One of the papers really uh, jumped out that, you, that we were looking at in the prep for this research, and it was about awe and uh, scientific thinking and it's funny when you say that when you tell people you study or they think oh well, you study religion and the benefits of that um because people probably throw those two together you know or in the face of a terrible god or you know and the power of uh, all that kind of thing but it, you were suggesting that there's a relationship between feeling awe and facility for scientific thinking which i think probably would surprise most people so what's the connection what's going on there well, you know, I, I, thanks for bringing that up. And that was a uh, wonderful project by Sarah Gottlieb, who's at Yale now. You know, when you read into the lives of great scientists, they're o- obviously they're often just blown away by the questions they're thinking about black holes or evolution mm. or, you know, and one of my favorite books on this is um, a book about how some of the greatest minds were awestruck by rainbows, Newton and Descartes. Both were awestruck by rainbows and like, how in the world do I see these <laughs> rainbow patterns of color, you know? Yeah. And, and they devoted a lot of time to figuring out how light bends through 
water in the air and produces rainbows. So if you, you know, and, and one of the most famous examples is Darwin, you know, who, when he was in the Amazon, you know, he called it a cathedral. He just said, this is incredible. And it, it inspired him to his scientific thinking. So it's clearly a catalyst. And, and I think what that, that study showed is if I regularly feel awe as captured in a self-report measure, I, I like science more. I have sharper thinking when it comes to scientific questions. I reason more like a scientist where I don't think teleologically that everything has an ultimate purpose behind it, right? I think what's, what awe does and, you know, Charles, your example, and it was so interesting to hear Igor's, too, of wandering, right, uh, is it makes you wonder about things. It's just like, wow, my knowledge is incomplete. Can't handle the beauty of this building or this blossom. And so I got I, I to use my tools to figure it out. And that's what science does. You guys are younger than me, but a lot of people with kids who are teenagers or my kids' age, you know, late teens, are worried that we're not letting our kids do what... Igor did, which is wander through a place and suddenly be struck by things and, mm. you know, um, be at a city or a park. And, and so I, I think that the openness of awe is in dire need today. We're too focused. So I, so I guess this is my second to last little thing that I want to sort of go into with all, but it was, yeah. um, it was just about, are some people more prone to, to all than others? And, uh, yeah. you know, is it a sort of a, a disposition? You know, someone is all prone and other people just, it doesn't tend to happen very much. Or is it super sort of situation specific or both? Well, I think it's, I, I think it's both. And, you know, the, um, what we found, um, one of the early awe scientists was a, a collaborator of mine, Lonnie Shioda. Um, you know, is, is there is a person who's open to the world, right, who loves Sudoku puzzles and weird music and goes to museums and mm. wanders through cities like Igor did. And, and yeah, the, the, there is a part of the, if you look at a community and you find people who feel a lot of awe, is they have this personality type. And we find, we can find those people. And they even have certain physiological tendencies. But at the same time, you know, and this is, you know, we're amassing a lot of data that show that if you just build a little bit of awe into your life, you feel less stressed. You know, older people, 75 years or older in this, this study, felt less depression, right? The later stages of life, you start to feel a little anxious and blue for obvious reasons. And awe actually reduced that. So I think, I think part of our challenge when we hear about this knowledge is, well, what am I going to, you know, and I do this in my life, which is, like in the next 30 minutes, how can I find a little awe? Maybe I'll walk mm. in a different way to school or I'll take that moment to look at a blossom, right? Mm. Uh, or look up or carve out time to look at a sunset. So I think it's both in, as always is the case. It's always both. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I, that kind of leads into the, the, so the practical side of things, you know, how, yeah. how, um, what are some kind of, or, or interventions that, that there's some evidence for, or even, yeah. and, and maybe we could specify some that we have evidence for and that some that seem like might be a good idea, but the evidence isn't there, but what can people do to sort of, as you say, bring a bit of awe into their lives? Say they, say they live in an urban setting, uh, and yeah. you know, they're nowhere near nature or vast landscape. And if you live in London, you can't see the night sky anyway, cause of light pollution. Yeah. Um, and like, can you look at a picture? Does that count? Or do you, do you really actually need to be in nature? So yeah, let's, how do we get practical about this? 
Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm learning this both from, you know, I do a lot of speaking about awe or awe and, and, and people tell me this, right. They tell me what they do. And then um, our science is really relevant, right? So, you know, we've, a lot of these effects we've been talking about are produced by five minutes of watching planet earth, the BBC or listening to uh, Bach or getting, you know, just taking in a view. So you can get it from digital art, from amazing videos. You can get this from narrative exercises, right, where you just write about an awe experience you've had and just reflect on it. You know, there's a lot of work in the science of well-being right now about, you know, once a week, just reflect on how someone gave something to you for gratitude. and mm-hmm. Or once a week, ref- think about as you started our conversation, like, what's the last time you felt off? Just think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really, this study of the awe walk, which people can find at mindful.org, where I did an awe walk out in the Redwoods, which is the mm-hmm. obvious place. But, you know, in our study, 75 years olds and above did an awe walk in their neighborhood, right, or in their play. And some of these were just walks in suburbs or cities. So they weren't you know, near Redwoods and running water, and they had the same benefit. So it's kind of a mindset thing. There's a lot of stuff you can do. That's interesting. I mean, because most people across the planet live in cities now, right? So yeah, got to think, yeah. of, think of those guys. <laughs> yeah. So I want to switch gears now and expand sure. beyond awe to a vastness of human emotion. Yeah. In order to do that, Will, uh, Charles and I decided to play a little game with Dr. Keltner. Oh, no. <laughs> What's it called, uh, Eagle? It's called the Daka Kelta Guesses Emotions Quiz. Ooh. Nice. So what we did is we pre-recorded some voice, rec- uh, like voice recordings of people expressing certain emotions. Excellent. And I will play those. And Daka, your task is to figure out which emotion it is. Uh oh! I mean, I'm in trouble. <laughs> right. Remember, we can always edit anything out and make give you a ten out of ten score in case it goes wrong. But let's just see how we go. <laughs> right. The first one, I think, it's quite an easy one. Let's see how we go. Fear. Fear. So far, so good. Perfect. Um, Igor, are you interested in me playing a, a bunch of people who are experiencing fear? Yeah. Maybe like one is interesting, uh, but. Uh, what is the difference? And this is for our uh, listeners too. How uh, different it is when you listen to one versus to multiple people expressing similarly similar cool. emotion. Okay, so this is uh, fear as a group. <laughs> Probably more obvious to most people. Now. It's quite terrifying. <laughs> All right. So so far you're on you're on an A so far. Um, uh, I'm going to play a single person experiencing emotion number two. Uh, Disgust. I'm afraid, Mr. Keltner. That is dis- that's desire. That oh, you desire. shouldn't have said that. You should oh. ask him the, All right. the whole thing. Oh, man, okay. I confused disgust with desire. I know. I think we need to keep that in, for sure. What does it tell us about your doctor? <laughs> All right. So we, we may, may re-edit that so that I don't give it away. No. Uh, but I'm going um, to play the group now. Okay. <laughs> oh, there we go. 
It's a little more obvious now. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't, doesn't sound so disgusting. Okay, emotion number three. This is, I think, a really tricky one. Uh-oh. So let's see how we go. <laughs> wow. Can I hear it again? Yep. <laughs> God, that's tough. It is tough, isn't it? Let, let's try the group and see how it, if it's more compelling, uh, convincing as a group. Wow. Uh, embarrassment? Bingo. It's embarrassment. That was really? A, wow. Yeah, I thought it was tough. Yeah, that is tough. Final one. Aw? That is awe. That is the theme of today's episode. Here, <laughs> here is a whole group of people in awe. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That was pretty good. That was 75%. Well, what does that wow. get you on the grade boundary at Berkeley? <laughs> it, 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 uh, not too well. But I'm, 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 I hope you keep that confusing disgust for desire. Define my career right. <laughs> and my personal life. So the reason why we played this uh, set is because the, uh, the, this recordings actually come from one of your most recent set of studies. Uh, where you try to map out the profiles in voices and visual stimuli. And we post the link also for our listeners. If you're interested you. in this, you can play it by yourself uh, by following the link on the podcast website for this episode. So can you tell us a bit more about this work? Uh, what motivated you to look at the signatures of different emotional profiles? Yeah, you know, thanks for playing. That. I mean, that was really interesting to be the subject of my own experiment. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, this is um, work that we've published in the last couple of years. And, and really, it comes from Alan Cowan, who's a brilliant computationally oriented uh, grad student in my lab. And, you know, a lot of people and most of the listeners will probably know about Paul Ekman's work on six emotions, which is embar- uh, anger, disgust, fear, sadness, surprise, and happiness, and all the kind of the science of emotion around that. And in that science, you know, what people mainly did is they would be shown one face and they would be given six words or six different situations, and they'd match a situation or a word to a face. And I, I think, again, you know, this is where it, that those findings, and I was a student of Paul Ekman, led me to wonder, mm-hmm. right, which is, what else is there? What about the voice? What about other emotions? And then, you know, how do people, how do people express these emotions in various ways, depending on their culture or who they are as a person? And that's, and so what Alan has done for the first time in the field is answer those questions. And, and what he did, uh, and it's worth just dwelling on the methods, right, is instead of just using six faces or 10 voices, he did studies where he gathered 2,000 faces or voices, right? So what you get is, although you have an embarrassment in, in the test that you guys built in, it, it sounds different, right? Each person produces it in a slightly different way. Mm. Or awe, right? You heard variations in awe, or particular fear. Some people were breathing, some people shrieked. Um, mm-hmm. So there's variability within a category, which we know to be true. And then he, he had people rate, judge all of these 2,000 faces or voices or short videos. And then with some really cool statistics, uh, for the first time he asked, in this really rich universe of emotion faces or sounds or short videos, how many emotions are there, right? 
And the field had been locked on six. And what Alan finds across methods, and we have a lot of papers on this now, is there are about 20 or 25 distinct states, right? Like you played embarrassment or awe or adoration or admiration or, you know, horror and fear. There are these interesting distinctions Mm -hmm. that hadn't been drawn in the literature. So it just tells us that this space of emotion is really complex, that there's variability in each category, right? When you listen to the variations of desire, and maybe that's why I got I stumbled on that, people express it in different ways, and maybe I perceive it in different ways. So there's much more richness than what the field had, had assumed just a couple of years ago. So one of the things that you wrote about recently, partially based on this work, is that there's this common view of emotions and that uh, your work suggests that we have to go beyond that. So what is this common view of emotions that, um, how would you characterize uh, the current theorizing in the field in the first place? Maybe we'll start there. Yeah, you know, I I mean, it's really striking. Um, You know, in in the late 1960s, uh, Paul Ekman publishes these papers on how the universality of facial expression. And it's Mm -hmm. based on those six emotions, anger, disgust, fear, sadness, surprise, happiness. Uh, I don't know why he chose those six emotions. Um, Darwin, his inspiration, wrote about over 40 different states in the expression of emotion in men and animals. But he chose those six, and almost all of the debate in the literature, are there, are there brain patterns to emotion? Are there universal facial expressions? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about physiological processes in the body? Uh, have focused on six. Now, Igor, your friend and my friend Phoebe Ellsworth, broadened, you know, are thinking to think about and you study mixed state. So we're starting to get more complicated, but most of the hot theoretical debate centered on those six emotions. And, you know, most people look at that list of emotions and they're like, wait a minute, I feel a lot of different positive emotions than happiness. I laughed with my friends. I felt grateful. I felt compassion or awe. And so I think the, that was kind of the first wave of the emotion science. And now we're opening it up to other states, positive emotions, uh, to complex blends like you study, uh, to kind of this more rich space that's more characteristic of our lives. And, you know, sometimes sciences get anchored to arbitrary, haphazard things like focusing only on six emotions, and, but we're changing that. So uh, in my role as an editor in the journal Emotion, I often find there's this contrast, there is this uh, different camps that I sometimes I'm not even sure who is in <laughs> what camp. And uh, often people don't even like talking to each other and there's all sorts of gossip uh, uh, behind yeah. uh, other people's back, uh, which I find really disheartening. Yeah, but this meta comment aside, one uh, representation is the one that you talked about, this basic uh, uh, emotion yeah. view. The other one is about... You mentioned Phoebe Ellsworth and other appraisal theories where emotions are viewed uh, I should say, as representations of underlying uh, dimensions yeah. uh, where you sort of map out the world more in terms of dimensions and the labels that you assign, those are the emotions. So how is uh, your thinking, uh, how is your thinking about how emotions work relate to these different perspectives, the appraisal theories, uh, yeah, uh, constructionist theories and so on. You know, I think there are two specific questions there. You know, mm-hmm. and this is the, you know, are emotions discrete categories or are they patterns of dimensions? And I think they're both. And I think right. that we'll we'll probably discover, you know, after twenty, thirty more years of science, that it may be that the brain is more dimensional, but our minds are more discrete. 
so, you know, on that, we, you know, we have now replicated and across four studies, five studies, and I can send links to the papers for interested people. But what we find is that when I label a face or when I listen to those voices and I try to make sense of it and label it, uh, or I listen to music or, or I see a short video, like a little cute dog or something that's mm-hmm. disgusting, right? Uh, we tend to label those. We, the mind labels emotion with, with discrete words, right? Like, um, wow, that was really disgusting or that was uh, awe, as opposed to these broader dimensions of valence and arousal. We've replicated that in India and China. So I think that the mind tends to work with discrete categories. Uh, more so than dimensions. But, um, you know, the human body may be dimensional. Our physiological systems, uh, which are only beginning to be understood, may really process the world in terms of threat or effort or, you know, valence or arousal. The brain may be more dimensional. We don't know. So that's one. And then the construction idea, which really, in part, I think our best translation of it is, has to do with cultural variability. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, one of my the people I admire in this literature is Bacha Mesquita. And, you know, she long ago wrote about like, there are going to be these core common themes to emotion across cultures, right? That awe is about vast things that anger is about injustice, uh, et cetera. And, but there, there's going to be a lot of variability and that's, mm-hmm. you know, in 25 years of science, that's what we find, which is around the world, awe people feel the chills when they have awe. That's a universal sensation. They feel like things are pretty vast. But as we talked about earlier, threat, right? Ooh, is this threatening or not? Mm. Really varies. And that's significant. Um, It changes the physiology of the awe. So I think in terms of the dimensions versus categories, I think it's going to depend on where we look. And then in terms of um, what's constructed, I think our data really show that there is a core to emotion that's universal Mm -hmm. and it's constructed. One more example, Igor, is we... Uh, This is a paper published last year. Dan Cordero had people in five cultures express emotion, 22 different emotions, China, South Korea, Japan, the U.S., uh, and one other country that I'm forgetting at at this moment, um, and India. And then he coded them with, he coded every muscle movement, 5,000 expressive behaviors. And you find for the 22 emotions, about 50% of what people do in five countries is the same, same muscle movements. Mm -hmm. And about 25% is what Hilary Elfenbein has called it cultural dialect, right? Like, mm-hmm. wow, if I'm in Japan, I laugh and I cover my mouth. Mm. We don't do that in the U.S. We show our tongues and teeth. Mm. Right. So, you know, so I think that kind of probably captures about where we'll land empirically, which is about half of this stuff is human and a quarter to a third is our culture. So one key thing, and you mentioned that already, to differentiate, or maybe like that is kind of square for this different theorizing uh, <laughs> ideas, uh, is uh, this notion of um, emotional mixture, emotional complexity. So when yeah. you, for instance, simultaneously experience more than just one thing. And how would one quantify that? And what does that mean, for instance, for your models? For instance, earlier we talked about the cultural differences in yeah. experience of awe in China where, uh, or in Mexico where there may be more fear, uh, could that partially be that they are more okay with this type of emotional experiences that are mixed, more complicated, not necessarily just positive or negative? Yeah. But general and, question, what is the role of emotional mixture here? Yeah, you know, 
Thank you so much for asking that, Igor. You know, it's, it's one of the hot areas of the science that you're working on, James Groves, Jeff Larson, and others of, you know, the one of the biases of this early anchoring to six emotions, we label them. If I study emotion lab, you just ask people about six emotions, is we don't capture the complexity of blends and then the complexity within a category that for people in China, that their awe experiences are going to be tinged with fear and threat a little bit more. Even though it's predominantly positive, there's more fear. Uh, or in Mexico. And and I think that, you know, this is where we have to open up our methodologies. And, and for the listeners, uh, if you go to the links and look at Alan Cowan's work or with me, or he has it at his website, alancowan.com, right. you'll, you'll see, like, incredibly interesting blends of emotions once you open up the methods and let people describe their full complexity of feeling rather than just six terms. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite is, uh, there are two that are really interesting, like where you can move from disgust to horror is such an interesting blurry boundary and blend, right? If suddenly I look at, you know, disgusting, you know, rotting flesh, but then I go to, whoa, this is terror, torture, and it becomes horrifying. Mm. What an interesting blend. Mm. Um, more po- you know, more positive is this amazing blend of, I, I love, there's a little sweet puppy or a baby. I feel love for it. And then it starts to do silly things, like it falls on its butt, right? And I start to <laughs> laugh, you know? And there's this amazing emotion. We all feel like, God, I feel joy. You know, I feel amusement and adoration at the same time. So uh, those blends, I think, are, are really going to be a great area of inquiry going forward that tells us how complex this all is. But rich. That's right. So one final part of complexity, and I promise uh, yeah. <laughs> I will not go much further than that. But yeah. one thing that occurred to me uh, is that a lot of methods, when they start to establish or try to establish the structure of emotions, so underlying dimensions, <laughs> often bring people into the lab yeah. and compare variability between people. So they just like measure people at the same time of what they may be experiencing at the same time. But often... Uh, we also see changes within the person. Yeah. And what yeah. are your thoughts on ah. the variability and the, of how the structure of emotions may be changing uh, when we look at intra-individual mm. processes, tracking the same person across multiple situations, for instance? Yeah, you know, I, I, again, that, you know, as we open our method and we realize, you know, well, it's not that I feel anger and now I'm feeling happy. Rather, we move through the day and the week and the months and years of life in these complex spaces. Right. Uh, and when your listeners go to our links and they start to navigate the complexity of the space, they're like, oh, wow, this is kind of what, I, you know, how I navigate through the world. And, and there is a little bit of work on what's called emo diversity, like how rich is the, the variability of the emotion I'm feeling or the different kinds of emotions within any particular moment. And, and, and it tends, people who feel more diverse in their emotional profile tend to do a little bit better in terms of stress and well-being. But no one's asked your question, Igor, maybe you're studying this, which is, am I more diverse in the morning? Is my, or probably less diverse because there's more cortisol in the morning. So maybe I'm more focused on one emotion. But as I open up after work and the emotional space gets more varied and complex, I think that, you know, do older people, 75, 80, you know, Laura Carsonson does a little bit of this, like their emotions are right. more complex. And you're right, you know, you may know this work, but in East Asian cultures, 
you know, steeped in traditions of Taoism where you, you know, two contradictory things can coexist. They feel more complicated emotions. They feel more complex emotions at the same moment. So there's a lot to unpack there and to figure out. I just wanted to ask both of you, actually, uh, Dakar, I, I think I have this correct in you um, advised on the film Inside Out, which was kind of brought emotions like the, into the mainstream, kind of, really. Yeah. Um, so uh, and it sounds like now, actually, you're saying, well, it's you know, maybe there should have been 25 different characters inside that girl's head rather than, you know, <laughs> um, but it's a complicated script. You need to, need to pay a lot more sort of voice artists. Exactly. And, um, but to both of you working in this field, what's it like having, what kind of feels like a fairly sort of, um, you know, an academic field sort of suddenly like becoming part of the public debate? Is it exhilarating? Is it exciting? Is it um, upsetting because everyone gets it wrong? Or what both of you, you know, to both of you, what's your feeling about that? Well, it's, it's, it's both, you know, there are times when, you know, I've had experiences where companies are trying to, you know, teach machines how to categorize emotion and they're only using six. Right. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. well, you're missing everything, you know, are you missing? <laughs> and then, and in our papers, we find that's about 30% of emotion, right? That 70% is, is not detected, but then it's exhilarating. And, you know, when I helped with inside out, in fact, Charles, you totally anticipate the first question Pete Docker, the director asked me is, how many emotions are there? <laughs> <laughs> and I blathered on. I was like, well, there are yeah. 20, you know? And he's like, well, we can't have 20 characters. So <laughs> we have these emotions. What would you add? And I said, you should add all, you know? Yeah. Um, but they stuck with those old six. But, you know, that, that movie, it really caught the wisdom of, of what we're learning about emotion. You know, they're, they have functions. They guide us, et cetera. Uh, sadness is okay. Mm. Uh, you know, when I, when I first saw it screening at the campus of Pixar, I, I cried. You know, mm. I was just like, wow, you know, here's, we've been working at this in the lab for 25 years, and, and this is going to tell the culture how important emotions are. So it's both. And, and interestingly, like what a lot of people seem to talk about when they come out of that film is the the functionality, I guess, of sadness. Yeah. That, that wasn't yeah. something that people really had got their head around, I don't think, at least consciously. <laughs> but that seems to be the thing. Anyway, everyone I speak to, like, wow, yeah, I've never really thought about sadness in that way. So, you know, that's a public service right there. Absolutely. And I would add, actually, that that's probably partially a Western bias that we have, where we really focus on the positive emotions, often at our own detriments. Yeah, Yeah, well put. I just had one last question. Um, Friends had mentioned to you, Igor, you know, if you get Dakar on the podcast, ask him this. That's right. Um, And it was was kind of, you know... um, I think they're asking for your uh, foresight about what big ideas coming next, because you, you seem to have over your career, you know, you've been at the forefront of lots of different fields, like looking at compassion, power, awe. And I, I get the impression people sense that you, you can read the runes, you know what's coming. So what, what, <laughs> what's the ne- next, like, what do you feel is a kind of an emerging field that, you know, maybe you'd even advise young grad students to move in the direction of, because it's, it's a rich area. What, what's coming next? Yeah, you know, I think that, I mean, you know, so I work on power and then I work on um, emotion and in the power space, you know, and this is a little bit more of an American problem or a problem in India or uh, Brazil, which is inequality, right? That I think a lot of the ills that we're experiencing in the United States, which we blame on immigrants and we blame on, you know, women or whatever are really about inequality. And so I think that there's a, you know, economists have long been interested in it some economists and some sociologists, but we, this should really be our space of 
what does inequality do to the immune system and to the brain and, and psychology and, and the mind? And then the second thing is, you know, is if your listeners go to Alan Cowan's website or the links you provide, you'll get to explore the space of emotion. And so then what's, you know, in the spirit of Star Trek, what's the next frontier? And <laughs> I think it is this frontier of joy and ecstasy and elation, you know, that what Durkheim called collective effervescence, where we're watching a, a basketball game, you know, and we're just joyful and mm. ecstatic. Um, those are really interesting, powerful emotions that are involved in music and art and, and sports and religion and family gatherings. And it's different from awe. And so I think that's going to be a, and, and, you know, you have to be bold, right? Cause you're, you are mm. back to this problem, which is, well, what do you study? And you yeah. tell your, your father-in-law, I study ecstasy. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Sure you do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I think it, they're, they're fascinating and they'll get us the interesting question. So, Daka, thank you so much. That was wow. um, mind-expanding. It was, Well, what uh, a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Daka. Thank you, Igor. In today's episode, we talked about awe as well as other emotions. We started by discussing what awe refers to, that it's not a uniformly positive or negative emotion, but rather a mixed emotion. We talked about its possible function, conditions that may foster it. For some people, it may be skyscrapers. For others, it may be nature. And for others, it may be just some amazing experience. We also talked about links of awe to humility, recognition of uncertainty, and even scientific thinking. Next, we broadened our discussion to the modern concepts of emotion and psychology and how one can go beyond the basic emotions advocated for in psychological science for a good part of the 20th century. There are more than just six basic emotions, and definitely more emotions than the Inside Out movie. We finished by talking about emotional complexity and the ways to capture people's emotions as they traverse different experiences in their daily lives. And that's all for today. Thank you for listening to the On Wisdom podcast. <laughs>